this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another edition of the in focus podcast i am your host g sampath the past few weeks have seen tremendous excitement around generative ai or artificial intelligence names like chat gpt doll e and stable diffusion are buzzing around and startups in the generative ai space are being flooded with multiple rounds of funding worth millions of dollars apparently all you need to do is type a textual prompt and you can have an original news article or a whole new painting or a photograph ready in a matter of seconds so what exactly is generative ai what makes it different from the other kinds of artificial intelligence that we are accustomed to what are its potential applications and what are the ethical concerns over this new technology we explore all these questions and more in this episode of in focus and we have with us dr matty pojonen from the helsinki institute for social sciences and humanities at the university of helsinki matty thank you so much for joining us thanks for inviting me i'm glad to be here uh, matty to start with can you tell us uh, for the benefit of our listeners in brief what exactly is generative ai and how is it different from so to speak normal ai what makes it so special that everyone is suddenly talking about it right now uh, that's a good question so uh, i'll try to keep this relatively brief and not go too much into the technical details so ai as we know artificial intelligence excels in finding statistical properties of any any data the kind of patterns and the underlying structures of large data sets and in a way somebody has called ai as being statistics on steroids in terms of what it does so generative ai fundamentally is not that much different from artificial intelligence algorithms and structures in general it takes underlying statistical properties of large data sets but what it does differently is that it produces new data new representation new forms of representation based on this data and i think where the big kind of uh, interest and the big uh, public interest in generative ai has happened is that what generative ai is able to do is take things that are generally considered kind of forms of creative human activity by taking large data sets of images by taking large data sets of text and not performing kind of automated functions that other ai does it can create a kind of magical representations in visual arts photorealistic images or new text in a way that creates this magical wow effect that a lot of people have been noticing and is something that we haven't seen before in terms of what computers are available and as we know people are not well that good with numbers or trying to understand what numbers mean but when you see an image that has been generated completely from scratch based on the data that it has been has been trained on we get it we kind of get that there's something unique something something new something really fascinating going on and and i think it's in a way it shows how the future as we as we know it has almost been accelerated and it's very fun to watch how these things are kind of evolving so in a way why now it has been happening that the past one year alone there has been a radical shift or radical development in some of the algorithms or the capabilities of generative ai in producing things like photorealistic images just based on text prompts or now with chat gpt producing text that seems to be written by seems to be authority written by humans and um, and coming up with new forms of producing knowledge and in a way i think the way i been explaining this um, a lot when i've been teaching and the students that we talked about deep fakes maybe four four years ago as being this kind of new development brought about by artificial intelligence but what generative ai does is takes pretty much everything and makes it into a deep fake 
So we see that we can start producing new kinds of uh, forms of knowledge and representation that was not possible before. So I think it's a very exciting and also very interesting time that we are now, now currently living in. Right. So these new images which it produces from studying uh, maybe billions of old images and the new text it produces, it's, you can broadly say it's, it's a kind of a deep fake as such, right? In a way, because uh, deep fakes are basically producing things that don't necessarily exist before. So it produces new content based on how the data that has been trained on. And it's this kind of newness or this creativeness that makes generative AI somewhat different from, from all the other kind of forms of AI that we have been generally being used to discussing. And, and that's, I think, also what at this point in, seems like the magic of what is being, what is happening. Right, right. Speaking of uh, the magic of what is happening, there are lots of this apparently, you know, magical terms we keep hearing. We keep hearing of something like LLMs, large language models and generative adversarial network, GAN, and deep learning and neural networks and so on. I mean, for instance, I mean, from, from a layperson's point of view, a neural network is something which you find in an animal with a nervous system or nerves, right? So what do they actually mean? Can you demystify some of these terms uh, for the lay audience? Yeah, sure. I'll try to keep it as, as simple as possible. And so uh, when people talk about artificial intelligence, it's not actually in terms of the mathematics behind it. It's not a very new phenomenon. So the idea for neural networks actually originates already to the 1940s. And the first kind of practical algorithm that, that um, kind of underlines all the systems was already invented in 1958. So it goes back tens of years, but now with the, with the kind of new developments in computing and data, these have been then implemented in a, in a kind of more large, large form scale. So what neural networks do is that they try to model the brain or the human brain or the animal brain, and in a way mathematically model it in the system that then can be used in, in functions in computing. And in a, just to keep very simple, what neural networks are is they are composed of new, what they call nodes, and they are composed of connections between the nodes. And by manipulating and adding weights and numbers to these nodes and the connections, it is very. It has proven to be very good in detecting patterns from large data sets and, in a way, identifying what happens, trends and patterns and, and statistical regularities in the data that is being fed into. So what is new about AI in the current kind of in the last 10 years is that because of more availability of large data sets and increased computing power, these neural networks then have become larger and they have been stacked into layers of them. And the more layers you start getting, you start getting what is called deep learning. So it includes tens of thousands of layers of this kind of neural networks that very broadly mimic or, or try to re resemble how the human brain functions. And obviously, once we talk about this, it's not exactly how the biological brain works, which is much more complicated and it's more complex, biologically nonlinear. And potentially now, according to recent research, includes all kinds of quantum and more complicated effects. But in a way, it's an approximation of how people think that the brain also is able to process information. And what is new about these neural networks that have been coming out in the last 10 years, but even the last few years, that they are increasingly large or they are becoming larger than ever. So you start getting hundreds of millions of parameters, hundreds of billions of parameters embedded into them. And that allows all kinds of, um, all kinds of what we call magic in the beginning to happen then. And then uh, if you if you go into like generative AI, there's a these are all kind of variations of this original neural network structure. So large language models are just massive kind of uh, systems that have been built on top of this of, of, on top of the structure of neural networks that have 
been trained on hundreds of billions of textual textual inputs, and some say that the Chat, chat GPT has been trained on pretty much the entire internet. So by becoming becoming or the data sets becoming very large and the neural networks systems becoming very large, they are able to do all kinds of complicated functions that were not possible before. And then, of course, you have generative AI has different algorithms, but in principle, they work with the same same kind of structure, all of the new models. Right. And what about this generative adversarial network or GAN, as, as they call it? So that was initially what kind of prompted uh, especially the, the creation of artificial images. And GANs was actually a very ingenious way that one uh, Ian Goodfellow came up with a structure. So it actually takes two neural networks and puts them into competition to each other. And by this iterative competition, it is able to start generating images from data sets that were not there before. And the way it does is that one of the neural networks becomes a kind of a generative network that produces new kinds of representation, new kinds of uh, data sets. And then the second, which is the, the second neural network, tries to get tries to determine whether these initial generated images are fake or not. And by iterating this game in a kind of a game theoretical process, it goes on, on and on after hundreds of thousands of iterations. It was shown that this can actually generate relatively photorealistic images. So when we started seeing people that did not exist before, some of the websites and some of the, these were the GANs were doing that, and this has slightly moved. Um, so the stable diffusion, some of the models now use a, use a kind of a diffusion model, which is slightly different from GANs, but the principle is still very much the same, that it is able to kind of fine-tune existing data and then produce uh, produce new content that from the human eye seems to be realistic and seems to also almost resemble what we see in real-world processes. Right, I mean, that's a really ingenious uh, way indeed to sort of uh, produce uh, these images and text. Now, coming to this uh, one application, which is sort of got everybody excited, chat GPT, it is being said that LLM, it's a large uh, language model is what it's uh, being described as. And applications such as chat GPT, they are saying could revolutionize many num- many number of fields from sales and marketing to healthcare. Uh, contract drafting, creation of new software. Apparently, you can use LLM applications to generate marketing literature, sales literature, to convert what the doctors you know diagnose into whatever notes for future reference. Can you share a little bit of what your thoughts are on how generative AI could impact these different domains of human activity? Uh, yeah, so uh, there was a very, very fascinating there was an image that was created by a computer scientist called Hans Moravec, and that goes back maybe about 10 years, if I can remember the exact date. And it is a kind of an image of a, a mountainous landscape where the valleys are filled with water. And he called this the kind of human capabilities that will be increasingly mimicked by artificial intelligence by degree of difficulty. And what was interesting at the map that was done a while back was that some of the things that we considered, that was considered then, as very difficult to replace by artificial intelligence or mimic by artificial intelligence, things like human activity, visual arts, design, book writing, creativity, other forms, even healthcare, now actually have been proven to be relatively simple to at least at least start working with with systems such as ChatGPT. So what the impact of that is is going to be interesting. There has been an impact already in terms of that. What are the consequences of of these new systems for kind of being able to automate tasks that were generally considered solely in the domain of human activity. So in a way, what the consequence of that is, is going to be is uh, it's something I think is very early to to kind of 
tell at this point because uh, in a way things are very new and things are being tried out and obviously these systems have their own problems and faults at the same time but at least um, at least in the kind of longer term these are going to have as any other artificial automated systems are going to have significant consequences both to how humans perceive their role in terms of unique intelligent creatures but also in terms of the, the different kind of jobs and functions that humans are doing and again interesting to see how this is going to be evolving and, and what the kind of risks are involved right in fact one of the interesting things uh, i sort of came across while uh, sort of reading up about these applications is that i mean you spoke about the creativity uh, involved uh, produced by this generative ai applications and and you know how they are able to mimic more and more of human activity and in fact one of the points being made is that apparently it's able to mimic human language and human activity for example if you are going to uh, use uh, generative ai for taking a customer call or a call center kind of a thing i mean the reason it's able to mimic so much of human activity is because much of human activity especially language use for instance is not really creative we go we say the same things again and again i mean a million people say the same things in different languages you know so much of it is actually not that creative it's something which can be replicated and that is the that is one of the reasons why generative ai is capable of mimicking human activity like would you agree with that uh entirely yeah so uh, i think what i meant, what i in the previous comment what i was saying is that it also shows the limits both in good and ga- in good and bad what are the kind of unique characteristics that humans excel in and things like things like repeating things and a lot of this what is generally considered human intelligence in fact has proven to be relatively repetitive so it also is an opportunity for us to see what are then these uniquely human characteristics that necessarily cannot be replicated by computers and where humans excel in and also in a way start thinking about how should we then encourage and support these things that we don't want computers or we cannot comp- have computers replace us So in a way I don't see I don't I completely agree with the point that there is a lot of repetition that happens in human life anyways and it is just able to pick up patterns related to this so but then what are the things that it cannot do I think that's where the interesting question comes and also the creative question or the kind of philosophical question Right do you think an application such as ChatGPT you know which draws on vast troves of data and literature to answer any question one might have it can do you think it can displace something like Google which when you ask google a question it gives you like hundreds of urls and links to sort of go and check yourself but this one distills all those information and then gives it to you in like one chunk so do you think chat gpt is like a competitor that could potentially displace a search engine like google well that's one of the terms that has been thrown around and i'm sure you have been hearing this as what is called generative search and in a way uh, what google does is that it just presents all the different sources for information that have been generated on a particular topic and ranks then and comes up with a certain criteria for accessing them so in a way what generative ai does and it takes all that data but it just uses the data sets in its own model then to produce answers based on that data so in a way yes there could be could be i could imagine a generative search engine that would just give the answers based on the kind of accumulated knowledge that humans have been collecting over of course with this problems and biases at the same time at the same time yeah i don't know if it's really a competition i think both have their places and i think google is very seriously looking into how we can also start doing something similar with these searches because that's where i think things have been things have been developing for a while already so you can see in google you can see like summaries of of the things that are being generated and questions and stuff like that so but yeah it's interesting it's a there's a big shift happening and again because it's so new it's it's 
very interested to see how and where this shift will evolve in the next next couple of years. Yeah, apparently, Chat GPT, for instance, it's not updated. I guess, but suppose it, it's 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 got information and literature and data up to say twenty twenty two December. I mean, that's it. Like, it won't be able to give you information which has sort of emerged, say, one day before or two days before. It's not apparently updated. It's the same thing. So that's going to be like it's going to be different from a generative search, which is actually like what Google is like giving you the latest updated information based on what has happened most recently is that the case with chat gpt it's also uh, we should not forget that these are prohibitively expensive to train so uh, if you want to keep constant training of systems i mean of course you can do uh, the kind of uh, transfer learning training but it is it is that it is very hard to come up with comprehensive models that are up to date because of the sheer vast amount of numbers. And also, it's good to forget that with Google, you still have the opportunity of finding marginal information or finding these uh, niche sites that are not maybe dominant, but with, with large data sets like ChatGPT, they might vanish into the deluge of data that is there. So I think both have different different good and bad sides, and, but you're completely correct that it's with these big models, it is very expensive to train them. So it, it's very, in that sense, they're probably updating them real time might become a challenge in the long run right updating them in real time i think is is going to be a big uh, factor in in determining their future use trajectory now coming to one big uh, issue uh, that's been talked about also in connection with generative ai in which are the ethical debates here and there have been some fresh concerns specifically uh, to do with biases uh, can you explain how biases uh, creep in? One one example of a bias I read about is that when somebody asked uh, uh, one of these applications to sort of uh, present a picture of a CEO, the CEOs were all white, for instance, you know. Uh, so they did needed actually some kind of corrective measures so that this kind of bias doesn't come in. Like, what are the other kinds of biases that have sort of caught your attention, and what measures? might be necessary to safeguard against them does these do you think these would require some kind of state regulation or are there other ways of doing this yeah it's a very very good question and uh, we have a number of colleagues here at the center who are working on specifically exploring different types of representations and biases in the representation so it's not only gender you have we were doing some religious religious kind of iconography and other iconography and it is uh, all the expected kind of biases would be present in the data so what this, it's an interesting debate on that, in a way, I think there has been a very active academic communication or ac- academic research field that has emerged around that, in a way, trying to see how could we start dealing and tackling with the consequences of all the all the bias there. So why it happens is that what, what artificial intelligence or what, what these models do is that they pretty much ingest all the data that has been generated over, over a given historical period of time. And of, is this data biased? In a way, a lot of the historical data that has been generated, in a way, includes the biases that come from uh, from the trading data, which means cultural, historical, societal biases. And in a way, the internet, if you look at the history of internet, also the data that has been generated has been predominantly produced by American, European, and uh, and Western context. And so you find this ethnic, gender, gender kind of racial, the colonial biases already embedded in the data set. So I think there's two questions here in a way, once we look at the whole structure of how these new AI systems work is that the first is that the problems become, as you mentioned, is that when they are being used for automated systems or are being used to make decisions. So there has to be a safeguarding way in the use of these systems that these 
historical, cultural, social biases that have kind of seeped into the data sets and the models then don't re- reproduce in society. And there's a whole political discussion of what's the best way of doing this and how, how can we guarantee that algorithms don't have this uh, ethnic, racial, gender, colonial biases in them. But I want to, in a way, there's an, there's an alternative kind of model or perspective to looking at this. And I've been working for about four years trying to look at these systems as a former researcher. And on the one hand, yes, they are reflections of the society and the historical period that produced them. But on the other hand, because if we start with the premise that the kind of cultural representation, cultural knowledge, historical knowledge itself has already been biased in terms of certain groups, certain certain. Um, inequalities, marginalized groups. So as a research, you can also then start using these systems to look at the kind of topology of cultural representations, to look at what types of biases are in there and to start exploring what the limitations are. And I think it's a very healthy, in a way, approach that we should start off that no AI system can be objective or perfect, that they always bring in some of these problems of the data that has been generated in them. And then the political decision is how do we want to modify them to become such that they actually don't reproduce these historical inequalities or, or the kind of historical violence that um, a lot of data has already or already brings brings into into the kind of model. So, but yeah, I think it's a very interesting question, and I think there's a lot of work now, good work being done on that. We're also trying to focus on in some of the some of the initiatives that we're getting involved with. Right, I think that I think that's a very important point you're making here to sort of uh, have it as a default understanding of AI that no AI is uh, per se objective in itself and it will have embedded biases. But this kind of a perspective often tends to get lost because you know when you start talking about data, everybody assumes data is like you know it's like a, some kind of a holy cow. It's objectivity incarnate, as it were. You know you can't question data because hey, it's data. You know, but then the fact that data collection is a human-driven process and data is produced by human beings who have their own biases in that perspective, I guess, is very important to sort of keep in mind with generative AI as well. Maybe just a quick point here is that when you, if you turn the question around going beyond the fact that maybe AI is not objective, can we have or what, what would an unbiased society in historical sense look like? So it's also acknowledging that there are inherent antagonisms and tensions in how representations have historically happened. And obviously, these same antagonisms, tensions, kind of politics will seep into the data and the models that are being used. So it's just being aware of what these are and then kind of finding the politics and ways of uh, at least making them more equal and and, uh, perhaps less violent as some of the historical trends have been. Right. I think that's a very important point. Now, moving on from uh, biases, the next concern which has sort of uh, come up is misinformation and, and how much truth uh, we get from whatever is produced by generative AI. And one research, uh, research study has found that on average, most generative models are truthful only 25% of the time. I mean, that's 25% is a, like, it's, it's a very small number. Is misinformation a big concern with generative AI? I think it's a good point to follow up on from the previous point and I think I don't. I can't remember who said it, but somebody said that the problem or the challenge with the systems like ChatGPT is that they are very authoritative and very convincing, even if what they say is completely stupid and factual nonsense. And I've been experimenting with these systems, and you can get really, really convincing, well-written answers that are not factually correct. And that's just because the system has no inbuilt kind of cognitive capability of determining if something is factual or not. It just 
creates the kind of new new generative text based on what he has learned and sometimes gets it wrong. But I think there's an interesting and there's a kind of sublime fascination with artificial intelligence and machines that they always should be truthful rather than something that might come out, might be well-written, might be very convincing, but completely factually miscorrect. And, and then obviously it can be used as a form of misinformation or false information. And in a way, I think the biggest challenge and this is where the critical thinking that we're we are trying to start working with in terms of artificial intelligence. I think more broadly, both with AI and other things, that the biggest challenge to kind of knowledge are people or stupid people who are confident that they're right and who think they're right, even if they say the wrong things. And, and in a way, AI to a degree is no different that we should we should get rid of rid of the assumption that if they're confident and if they provide factual things that they are actually always correct. So I think, in a way, the misinformation will require a new type of critical mindset of how we start dealing with the deluge of information and and try trying to find new ways of trying to new mechanisms of trying to assess whether something is right or wrong or factual or incorrect and what the source of information, how it has been produced, who should be trusted and why should certain AI systems, are they more truthful, more factual than other sources of information. But again, I'm not really that pessimistic, I think. This is a matter of education and in in the kind of work that we have been doing, doing a fair bit of kind of philosophical work around data and trying to look at some of the kind of historical scientific trends on this is that, in a way, there has been thousands of years of philosophical thinking that has tried to address these similar questions of how do we assess the factuality of some information that is being produced? What is uh, What are the kind of sophisticated, accurate mechanisms of coming up with truth claims that would be more sustainable than other truth games so i don't think this ideas like epistemological source verification i think they exist already and i think they just should be applied similarly into new systems whether it's ai or it's right no you're right absolutely right there and i i've been experimenting a little bit with this chat gpt and and i and, and it, it's really seductive when you can ask uh, some question and the answer might be really stupid, but the way the answer comes to you, it's with so much authority and confidence. I mean, confidence is, of course, what you project into it, but it's a machine, you know, even if it's really nonsensical, it presents it as if it's, uh, it's, it's, it's the authoritative truth. And that's something I think one should guard against when it's a borderline case of, you know, a partial truth, partial misinformation kind of a thing. Exactly. Exactly, and be, crit- be critical of all types of information sources, whether they come from the internet, from social media, or from a new AI system, and, and in a way build on the mechanisms for assessing critically how, va- how valid certain types of information are. And I think that's a skill that I think will become more important than ever in, in the contemporary society. Right. Now, moving on to the third the big uh, sort of debating point uh, with regard to generative AI is about copyright content generated by artificial intelligence should it be subject to copyright and if yes who should have the ownership of it because the data sets which have been used to make it have come from all kinds of sources so is there any kind of a movement towards any kind of consensus on this question about copyright there has been a, even in the past couple of weeks there has been a number of court cases that have emerged where this kind of questions are being played out and i think there are two two questions in terms of copyright with these systems and the one is what you mentioned is that who has copyright over the data that is being used to generate these generative ai systems and that's the kind of battle that is now being fought out there's a court case against stable diffusion by some artists that their artwork should be compensated as they're being used uh, 
use to produce new forms of uh, forms of art through these text to image models. And but the other one is also that is being now discussed is that who has copyright when you generate images using systems that you very little have very little input yourself. That as an artist you're not really doing the work. So I think these are all debates are being played out. So I think this reminds me, and as somebody who's been around doing research on all things digital for a long time, this reminds me a bit of the late debate or the debate in late 90s, early 2000s around Napster and, and uh, sharing information online. So that was a very new development and there started being all kinds of tools and devices and copyright copyright case around that. So I think the copyright, will unfortunately, will become something that is going to be fought out around these systems. And in a way, my fear here is that the, it is the people with the best lawyers, as often has happened, as often ha- also happened potentially during the copyright wars in the 2000s, will be the ones who will eventually win. And there'll be a lot of money coming into place. And that's that's going to be probably the next couple of years of court cases and other court cases planning things out. So what exactly is going to happen, I don't know. I don't know. This is such a new, new kind of development, but it's a field to be watched at the moment. Okay, that, that's not a very, uh, I don't know, very optimistic <laughs> point of view that the, the guys with the best lawyers uh, are the ones who are going to uh, see their agenda win. And we'll come back to that maybe at some point. Now, generative AI, like all other kinds of artificial intelligence, has been linked uh, with this big threat. I mean, we started with the Industrial Revolution, now we're still at the same point on this question. Is it going to be a bigger threat to employment? Is it going to make more people jobless than other forms of automation that you have seen in the past? Uh, it's again, this is it's a very interesting question. And I think it has been, uh, I remember I was teaching a course on what jobs can ro- robots take. Uh, was one lecture we, we did a while back. And uh, there's an anthropologist, David Graeber, who came up with a book a couple of years back. He's now deceased, which was called, I'm sorry for using the exact title of the book here. It was called Bullshit Jobs. And what he argued was that in any case in contemporary society, regardless of automation, there's a whole number of jobs that are there which don't really serve that kind of serious value to the well-being of humans and how they kind of work within. So they are there because people need to make money and people need to work. So in a way, I think there's a lot of uh, jobs that can be replaced by automation because they don't really require that kind of level of human creativity to operate in the first place. And whether this is a good good or bad thing, I, I don't think it has really to do with the AI system themselves, but rather what types of activity employment can society then use to replace people who don't feel that they have a function in the workplace anymore. So and how will this survive and what will happen in this case? And it's a very similar debate. And these are some colleagues of mine have been working on this that happened with automation and the Luddites already in the, in the 150 years ago, 200 years ago around the kind of development of automatic factory systems. And it wasn't only about the jobs being replaced, but the kind of human value of being able to do some do some valuable and important important meaningful work in, in society. So I think we should talk about, in a way, moving away from purely the unemployment factors, we should also think where does this money, where will this money go? What is the new, where, where are the savings going? Who is going to be generating and getting all of the money? And also what, what role increasingly will people have if they, their jobs are not valued anymore and how we can. So I think it's going to be a big societal discussion where there's many different factors and and it's going to be a relatively big shift in terms of where this will go again. We don't have any clear answers. Right. And I think I think you, you, you made a very good point in sort of, uh, sort of bringing up the fact that it's not just about jobs being displaced by generative AI. It's also about human beings finding 
and being able to do meaningful work now one meaningful work one kind of work which many human beings find meaning, meaningful is to create art to create music to create uh, new kinds of text or literature now generative ai has been producing art it has been producing music it has been producing literature now it seems to be not just displacing jobs but displacing meaningful human activity as well in a way in a way that too and uh, again i'm relatively i might have been pessimistic with the lawyers but i'm relatively optimistic with the human condition and um, if ai can replace some of the more visual arts aspects of it i don't really see that as threatening what is uniquely human but i see it as helping us explore and find out what then is it where humans excel in and we also often when we think about like visual arts in terms of generated by ai we are still dealing with pixels on the screen it's not necessarily so if you take a van gogh painting and go to see in the museum it's not a small pixel on the screen that has been generated by ai but it's a embodied object that is in space which has all kind of texture and has all kinds of other things so we are forgetting in this debate around creativity and artificial intelligence all that ideas like embodied knowledge like environmental knowledge uh, we've got these 3d printers and all that right wouldn't that sort of transform those pixels into something more well that will be the interesting step so if we start getting uh, almost like star trek like uh, what do you call this so that we can start also creating pictures and images so i think that will come it'll come in a few years so that will be again another almost like an existential challenge that but in a way if you look at history of intelligence the idea of like embodied knowledge which is a very difficult problem currently even in robotics and artificial intelligence is like how people operate in environments interactively moving back and forth and i think there needs to be slightly more focus in the critical discussion around generative ai systems and what does it mean in terms of embodied knowledge moving in space having body awareness emotional intelligence and all kinds of other things which as far as i know are proven to be very difficult to replicate by even intelligent systems and so again it just showed i think it changed the contours or the kind of uh, landscape of what what we need to be focusing on and i don't think it's necessarily there are a lot of problems there but i don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that we have to re reinvent ourselves as what does it mean to be human as well right uh, we're running out of time mati so one final question before we wrap up i mean you uh, you have recently co-founded the sois center on ai futures uh, congratulations on that can you share your thoughts on what what are likely to be very quickly what are likely to be the major issues or themes uh, that could dominate the discourse around generative ai in the global south in countries like india and so on uh, the socio politics of generative ai as it were Yes of course of course and we are one week early so the official launch of the center will be on the 25th of January in London and so I currently work at the Helsinki Institute for Social Science and Humanities so we have partnered up with SOAS and uh, quill.ai which is a AI company based out of Singapore which has a lot of practical knowledge around use of AI in different global contexts and in a way where I come from we bring in more methodological philosophical debates and and so as has its un- unparalleled expertise in regional context so when we were having this discussion we wanted to kind of bring these forces together because there's a lot of work and discussion now happening around uh, artificial intelligence but still even though good work is emerging from other parts of the world the debate has been relatively west focus so far or focused on uh, kind of interest and and uh, and developments in the US and Europe and slightly in China so we want to see how could we start reinvent to try to reinvent or reinvent the field by starting from the very ground up experiences 
in the context of SOAS excels in, in the global south, in Africa, Asia, the Middle East, and, and focusing on different types of research agendas around this. So in a way, generative AI is going to be one part of it that I'm very interested in working on myself. But what we want to do is look at like cultural effects of AI, see how methodological innovations also try to diversify the data sets that are being used and see what, what kind of negotiations would happen there. And then also look at how people actually work in very different socioeconomic conditions or context. So I think the interesting, and I'll conclude with this, is that, as I mentioned, that the internet that has been, or the images or the text that has been used to generate these data sets so far has provided a very partial or very restrictive limit representation of the accumulation of human knowledge globally. And uh, a lot of it has happened through because of the history of internet in the kind of post-colonial context in, in US, Europe, and other parts. So, and that is going to be the kind of baseline or foundation that it is AI models to be trained on. So what we are interested in to see or negotiate of if there's a way or trying to understand these developments without actually necessarily starting first from what already exists, but seeing if we can bring in that diversity of knowledge, diversity of experiences from places that there hasn't been sufficient data yet and, and, and see how that kind of could complicate or bring in new perspectives to understanding AI in the future. And I think these are some of the things we'll be working on. And obviously, we're launching next week. So a lot of will depend on practical projects. And and uh, But yeah, I'm quite excited to see what comes out of that. Right. It really is a very exciting uh, domain, the cultural effects of generative AI and the need uh, and, and the way it's happening, whether there is adequate uh, diversity of data sets and, you know, and taking a critical look at that. I think this is an exciting field. All the best uh, for the launch. Thank you so much once again for joining us, Matty. Thank you. It was my pleasure and it was a great discussion. In Focus, we'll be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.